Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. search and rescue officer for the U.S. Forest Service, and I have some stories to tell. I wasn't sure where else to post these stories, so I figured I'd share them here. I've been an SAR officer, search and rescue officer, for a few years now, and along the way, I've seen some things that I think you guys will be interested in. Uh, I have a pretty good track record for finding missing people. Most of the time, they just wander off the path or slip down a small cliff and they can't find their way back. The majority of them have heard the old stay where you are thing and they don't wander far. But I've had two cases where that didn't happen. Both bother me a lot and I use them as motivation to search even harder on the missing persons cases I get called on. And the first was a little boy who was out berry picking with his parents. He and his sister were together and both of them went missing around the same time. Their parents lost sight of them for just a few seconds. And in that time, both the kids apparently wandered off. When their parents couldn't find them, they called us. and We came out to search the area. We found the daughter pretty quickly. And when we asked her where her brother was, she told us that he'd been taken away by the bear man. She said he gave her berries and told her to stay quiet and that he wanted to play with her brother for a while. The last she saw of her brother, he was riding on the shoulders of the bear man and seemed calm. Of course, our first thought was abduction, but we never found a trace of another human being in that area. The little girl was also insistent that he wasn't a normal man, but that he was tall and covered in hair like a bear, and that he had a weird face. We searched the area for weeks, 
It was one of the longest calls I've ever been on, but we never found a single trace of that kid. The other case was a young woman who was out hiking with her mom and grandpa. According to the mother, her daughter had climbed up a tree to get a better view of the forest and she'd never come back down. They waited at the base of the tree for hours, calling her name, before they called for help. Again, we searched everywhere, and we never found a trace of her either. I have no idea where she could possibly have gone, because neither her mother or grandpa saw her come back down. Now, a few times I've been out on my own searching with a canine, and they've tried to lead me straight up cliffs, not hills, not even rock faces, straight, sheer cliffs with no possible handholds. It's always baffling, and in these cases, we usually find the person on the other side of the cliff or miles away from where the canine has led us. I'm sure there's an explanation, um, but it's sort of strange. One particularly sad case involved the recovery of a body. A nine-year-old girl fell down an embankment and got impaled on a dead tree at the base. It was a complete freak accident, but I'll never forget the sound her mother made when we told her what had happened. She saw the body bag being loaded into the ambulance, and she let out the most haunting, heartbreaking wail I've ever heard. It was like her whole life was crashing down around her, and a part of her died with her daughter. I heard another search and rescue officer say that she killed herself a few weeks after it happened. She couldn't live with the loss of her daughter. I was teamed up with another SAR officer because we'd received reports of bears in the area. We were looking for a guy who hadn't come home from a climbing trip when he was supposed to, and when we ended up having to do some serious climbing to get where we figured he'd be. We found him trapped in a small crevice with a broken leg, and it was not pleasant. He'd been there for almost two days, and his leg was very obviously infected. We were able to get him into a chopper, and I heard from one of the EMTs that the guy was absolutely inconsolable. He kept talking about how he'd been doing fine, and when he'd gotten to the top, a man had been there. He said the guy had no climbing equipment, and he was wearing a parka and ski pants. He walked up to the guy, and when the guy turned around, he said he had no face. It was just blank. He freaked out and ended up trying to get off the mountain too fast, which is why he'd fallen. He said he could hear the guy all night, climbing down the mountain and letting out these horrible muffled screams. The story bothered the hell out of me. I'm glad I wasn't there to hear it. One of the scariest things I've ever had happen to me involved the search of a young woman who'd gotten separated from her hiking group. We were out until late at night because the dogs had picked up her scent. When we found her, she was curled up under 
a large rotted log. She was missing her shoes and pack, and she was clearly in shock. She didn't have any injuries, and we were able to get her to walk with us back to base ops. Along the way, she kept looking behind us and asking us why that big man with black eyes was following us. We couldn't see anyone, so we just wrote it off as some weird symptom of shock. But the closer we got to base, the more agitated this woman got. She kept asking me to tell him to stop making faces at her. At one point, she stopped and turned around and started yelling into the forest, saying that she wanted him to leave her alone. She wasn't going to go with him, and she wouldn't give us to him. We finally got her to keep moving, but we started hearing these weird noises coming from all around us. It was almost like coughing, but more rhythmic and deeper. It was almost insect-like. I don't really know how else to describe it. When we were within sight of base ops, the woman turns to me, and her eyes are about as wide as I can imagine a human could open them. She touches my shoulder and says, he says to tell you to speed up. He doesn't like looking at the scar on your neck. I have a very small scar on the base of my neck, but it's mostly hidden under my collar, and I have no idea how this woman saw it. Right after she says it, I heard that weird coughing right in my ear, and I just about jumped out of my skin. I hustled her to the ops, trying not to show how freaked out I was, but I have to say, I was really happy when we left the area that night. This is the last one I'll tell, and it's probably the weirdest story I have. No, I don't know if this is true in every SAR unit, but in mine, it's sort of an unspoken, regular thing we run into. You can try asking about it with other SAR officers, um, but even if they know what you're talking about, they probably won't say anything about it. We've been told not to talk about it by our supervisors. And at this point, we've all gotten so used to it that it doesn't seem weird anymore. On just about every case where we're really far into the wilderness, I'm talking 30 or 40 miles, at some point we'll find a staircase in the middle of the woods. It's almost like if you took the stairs in your house, cut them out, and put them in the forest, I asked about it the first time I saw some, and the other officer just told me not to worry about it, that it was normal. Everyone I asked said the same thing. I wanted to go check them out, but I was told, very emphatically, that I should never go near any of them. I just sort of ignore them now when I run into them because it happens so frequently. I have a lot more stories, and I suppose if anyone's interested, I'll tell some of them tomorrow. If anyone has any theories about the stairs, or if you have seen them too, let me know. These, these stories came from I'm a Search and Rescue Officer for the U.S. Forest Service, and I'll get the link in the show notes. They're really cool stories, and we actually have more to share and I'll be adding those on probably in the next few episodes to come. That was just a taste. 
All right, we're going to take a break for now, and we will be right back. back from that break. Portlock, Alaska is also known as Port Chatham, Alaska. Port Chatham is a bay on the southern tip of the Kenai Peninsula. It's also a former village of the same name, and it hardly seems like a setting for inexplicable terror and fright. Port Chatham is a ghost town. The reasons a town can die are many and varied. In some cases, the town was bypassed by a railroad or a highway. Other communities disappear simply because they've exhausted the natural resources which drew people to the area in the first place. Um, gold mining towns come to mind. Wars, natural disasters, political wrangling, and the like can all be reasons a community might be abandoned in favor of another. Now, Portlock or Port Chatham, is hard to get to. It's hard to travel to. The only real way you can get there is by a bush plane or a boat. If you do arrive there, you would see an abandoned town, and you'd still, be see, the you'd still see the remains of a once healthy and vital village. At one time, there was a cannery, there was a chromite mine and a territorial boarding school for the children of the Kenai Peninsula. The town had a post office, and of course there were homes. And overnight, everything changed. Literally, residents of Port Chatham picked up stakes and just left en masse. This happened in 1949. And unlike most doomed communities, which die agonizingly slow deaths, Port Chatham ceased to exist practically overnight. And what could have caused such a sudden and total mass exodus? So a story from the Anchorage Daily News from April 15, 1973, tells this tale. Port Chatham began its existence sometimes after the turn of the century as a cannery town. In 1921, a post office was built, and for a time, the residents, who mostly made up of, they were natives of Russian Aleut extraction, lived in peace in their beautiful mountain and sea setting. And sometime in the beginning years of World War II, rumors began to seep 
along the Kenai Peninsula that things weren't really right in Port Chatham. Men from the cannery town would go up into the hills to hunt and never return. And worse yet, as the stories ran, sometimes their mutilated bodies would be swept down into the lagoon. They were found to be torn and dismembered in a way that bears could not or would not do. Now, the newspaper story gives just a glimpse into the terror that the citizens of Port Chatham felt during this time. We're going to go into some of the other stories about the place and why they all packed up and left. So some examples were there were murders and disappearances that took place. And one of the ones was Andrew Kamluck. He was a logger. He had been working. And in 1931, he was found dead in the woods from a blow to the head from a piece of logging equipment. His co-workers found him. And this, it was actually log moving equipment. It was found nearby as well. He was about 10 feet away from it. There was no way he could have slipped and fell into it. But he was hit in the head. He died from a, a head injury. And his blood was on this on this um, equipment. And it the only way they figure is somebody picked it up and swung it and basically hit him over the head with this equipment. But the catch is, this equipment was so heavy, a man couldn't lift it. Brian Weed, a co-founder of a group called Juno's Hidden History, has spent a significant amount of time digging up some of the old stories about Port Chatham. One of them was about this logger, and what Brian says is the following. A logger was out working, and something or someone hit him over the head with a huge piece of logging equipment, something that one man couldn't have lifted. When they found his body, there was blood on the equipment, and there was no way that one person could have done it. He was a good 10 feet from the logging equipment, so it's not like he slipped, fell, and hit his head. It looked more like someone picked it up and hit him over the head. Around the same time, Elder Simeon Vasnikov of nearby Port Graham, which is present-day Nanwalik, said that a gold miner headed out for the day and just disappeared. No sign of the prospector was ever found. Sometime later, Tom Larson went out to chop wood for fish traps, and he saw something large and hairy on the beach. He ran back home for his rifle, and when he returned to the water's edge, the thing just stared at him. Larson never could explain why he never fired. In 1973, an Anchorage newspaper ran another story from a retired school teacher who had taught at Port Chatham during World War II. And she told of the cannery workers who went into the mountains for hunting and never returned, search parties finding no trace of them, and rumors spread that mutilated bodies were found. They were torn and dismembered in a fashion that 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 didn't rep, that didn't resemble wounds from a bear attack. And she actually repeated the tale that that the bodies had been swept down by rains, by heavy rains, down the mountain and into the lagoon. Other rumors include specifics of the beast's features, 
Hunters following signs of a moose came across man-like footprints that exceeded 18 inches in length. And as they closed on the moose, they realized that they and the owner of the big feet were tracking the same animal. The hunters came across a matted down area of grass that held indications of an apparent life and death struggle. struggle. Beyond the grass, the hunters found no more moose tracks, but they did find the large man-like footprints that continued upwards and into the cloud-draped mountains. In an article of, in October of 2009, in an edition that ran in the Homer Tribune, Nanwalik elder Melania Helen Kell, who was born in Port Chatham in 1934, gave insight into the demise of her hometown. Melania said that things in Port Chatham started out well enough for her family, but that things degenerated to such a point that the family left their home and fled. The family had endured the murder of Melania's godfather, Andrew Kamluck. And Kamluck was a logger. Again, this was the original logger who had been hit on the head with what appeared to be the log moving equipment. And she goes into that story with basically the same, that he'd been hit with a piece of heavy log moving equipment. And it was agreed that Kamluck was killed instantly and that the murderer would have been a true brute to weld such a piece of equipment in question as a lethal weapon. The family stuck it out in Port Chatham for more than a decade after the murder, but after being terrorized for a long period of time, and along with their other villagers, they finally just packed up and left. She says, We left our houses and the school and started all new here in Nanwalik. Tales of murder and mayhem roll out of Port Locke on a regular basis, and they kept gaining steam during the World War II years. So is it the Alaskan version of a Bigfoot doing this? If it is a Bigfoot in Alaska, it seems to be very cantankerous and murderous even. In 1900, a group of hair-covered creatures ran at a prospector who had climbed a tree in an attempt to get his bearings near Thomas Bay. The prospector said that they were the most hideous creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils. The prospector, upon seeing the creatures advancing on him, was able to drop down out of the tree, get to his canoe, and make his escape in the nick of time. He had no doubt in his mind that had he not seen the creatures in time, they would have made short work of him. And in 1920, Albert Petka, who lived on his boat near Nulato, was attacked by a bushman. That is another regional name for a Sasquatch-like creature. His dogs were able to eventually drive off the attacker, but the damage was, was done and Petka's injuries proved fatal. In, in the 1930s, incidents started to happen that drove away most of the Russian Aleuts who actually lived in town. They moved out for an entire year. The people who were running the cannery actually begged their workers to return, and they did. They came back the following season. However, 
the cannery had to provide them with armed guards for the time that they were there. And that was the only way they, they could get their workers back in town at all. Now, monsters or no, people abandoned Portlock en masse. That we have establishes the fact. These people did leave the town. We know when the town and the post office shut down. We know that there are reported murders in the area. And they called them murders. That also includes people that just disappeared. And we're not talking about one or two people. We're not talking about five or six or even a dozen. We're talking about more than three dozen people who went missing or were murdered. 1943, during the height of the siege of Port Chatham, a violent attack took place at DeWild's camp near Ruby, Alaska. In this case, the victim was John Meyer, or the Dutchman, as he was called by the local Native Americans. He was killed by an assailant, thought to be the Bushman. He was badly beaten, but his dogs eventually were able to run the killer off. Meyer was able to get to his boat and travel to the nearest village to seek help. But unfortunately, he died of internal injuries shortly after arriving. He was, however, able to relate his story before passing. Now, you may not believe that an entire town could be terrorized by a rampaging wood ape to the point that residents would abandon it. And you may feel the strange story of Port Chatham, Alaska is, at best, greatly exaggerated and, at worst, completely fictional. What can't be denied, however, is that Port Chatham was once a thriving community and that in 1949, the residents left abruptly for no apparent reason. They left their houses, tanks, wharfs, pilings, their livelihoods, their jobs, the school. They fled to nearby villages like to English Bay and to Port Graham. And also true is that the residents of these two communities refuse to visit the ruins of Port Chatham to this very day. These two facts alone give the story the ring of truth. Something happened on the Kenai Peninsula back in the 30s and the 40, 40s. And whatever happened, it was something bad. The stories didn't stop with the abandonment of the village. In 1968, a goat hunter claimed to have been chased by a creature while he was hunting in the area. In 1973, three hunters took shelter during a three-day storm and claimed that each night something walked around their tent on what sounded like only two feet. And in 1990, an Anchorage paramedic was called out to aid a 70-year-old native who had suffered a heart attack but was incarcerated in the Eagle River Jail north of this city. While treating the man, the paramedic happened to mention he'd hunted in the area of Port Chatham. The elderly man suddenly sat up, grabbed the medic by the shirt, and asked, Did it bother you? Well, with that question, the hair just stood up on the back of my neck. I said, Yes. Did you see it? was his next question. I said, No. Did you see it? And he said, No but my brother seen it. It chased him. And the stories continue to this day.
Petrifaction is sponsored by LegacyBrewing.shop. At LegacyBrewing.shop, it's all about the coffee. In addition to wonderful tasting gourmet coffee, you can also get all your accessories at LegacyBrewing.shop. They have the most adorable animal coffee mugs, and if you have great coffee, you have to have a great mug. Check them out today at LegacyBrewing.shop. that's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at pd at petrifaction at protonmail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories and friends be prepared to be petrified.